0: how can you be part of a religious community that's straight up sometimes it feels like the church is trying to move the seems to be stuck in their
1: ways when the rest why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers but they of a even know the question the church is the most vocal, political voice against immigration. the church is still don't they claim i worship with the actual do how can you the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest how is that actually it seems like so much of the, so the
0: church's church or being a good anti-critical American, thinking, thinking or being good homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, and disconnected from what is truly happening in
1: the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today, our very special guest is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. Dr. Moss is senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. He is a preacher, poet, activist, author, and filmmaker with an eye toward justice and equality as evidenced through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He founded the Unashamed Media Group, a justice-centered, faith-based agency committed to producing and curating stories to inspire the heart and challenge the mind. In October of 2020, great time to launch anything, by the way. Simple, not a lot of, not a lot of red tape, no extra logistics to go through. Dr. Moss created Otis's Dream, a short film about his grandfather's unsuccessful attempt to vote in 1946. Dr. Moss preaches a theology of liberation rooted in black spirituality of love and justice. His passion for African American culture and history, combined with a deep appreciation for jazz and hip hop, have culminated in a unique message of hope and healing through a jazz narrative on American democracy. Dr. Moss is ordained in the Progressive National Baptist Convention and the United Church of Christ. Dr. Moss was identified by the Baylor University George W. Truett Theological Seminary as one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English language of 2018. I was number 13, but in Hawaii, the time difference, they didn't have time to get me up. I was close, I was close though. He is married to Monica Brown Moss, and they are grateful parents of their amazing team of MK and Eli. In 2015, Dr. Moss wrote Blue Note Preaching in a Post-Soul World, Finding Hope in an Age of Despair. In his newest book, which we are here to talk about today, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times— I'm almost out of breath and I didn't even talk about the fact that he was running track when he was younger. We won't even get into that today. (laughs) Dr. Moss, man, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for being with me personally and with the listeners to the Church Needs Therapy podcast as well.
0: It is my delight, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me on. And I get a chance to look out your window and see how sunny it is in comparison to Chicago.
1: <laughs> yep yeah different everybody has that for me i tell people when i travel i like it cold and by cold i mean 65 that's usually how i like it when i travel my don't kids say were in,
0: don't don't say that anymore, my, don't say I, anymore.
1: We've, just being in california at christmas my wife and i took we have two kids they're four and six years old Michaela and true and we were at disney and when it got dark it was probably like 63 and my son was like dad this island is cold <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's um, let's start. I want we're gonna talk about the book. You know, some mm-hmm. of the the things that are in there, the stories. You know, the place it's born out of. But I do, I think, with your unique experience and wisdom and the journey that you've had, I want to start in a more broader sense before we come back down. Your life and faith was born out of and grew through what you refer to as black spirituality, and I want to say this to people who listen in you were not born into did not grow with did not grow up with and are not spending the majority of your energy reacting to the machine of white evangelicalism which for <laughs> so many folks who listen who, who listen to podcasts like this you know might unconsciously see as a monolithic force
0: mm-hmm. when
1: it's in reality it's not it is a part it is a stream within a much larger river that has been moving So what do you mean specifically when you use that phrase, Black spirituality, right? What are the grounding practices and traditions and people and values of this particular way of being Christian and thus really just becoming human as we're as we're growing?
0: I'm so glad that you you asked that question because a lot of people skip over that. And I sometimes have to uh, frame it for for people. But, you that. know, why
1: why depending on how much time white folks have spent around black people, they're like, Can I say black? Should I say black spirituality? <laughs> is it okay? So I think some people probably just don't know how to ask the right don't know how to ask the question. That's,
0: you know, kudos to you, Kev, for <laughs> real. Um, because a lot of people like to skip over that. Um first of all, the 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 black church tradition is not the white church and blackface. I think that, that people need to understand that. Black spirituality. Is is a tradition uh that has traveled into the the North Atlantic uh from hundreds, thousands of years. One, uh, sacred and secular are not separate, that God rules in every aspect of our being. So I traffic in stories, so let me tell you a story. Um, when I was small, uh there was a, a group, a Jack and Jill group. Uh, that was uh, taking a group of young people to uh, see a concert. That concert, the opening group was a group called DeBarge, and the main act was Luther Vandross. I didn't want to go see either, but uh, there was a cute young lady that I definitely wanted to to be there and be present with if they were going. And as I was at the concert, uh, I noticed when Luther came out, who was one of the great crooners, R&B crooners, and he started singing a song, House Is Not a Home, there was a woman that I saw that was in about third row who was just, just shouting away. And I was like, wait a minute, she goes to my church. And uh, what I realized was the experience, what Luther was doing in what some would call a secular space Mm. also flows over into the sacred space. That is why within, within African-American spirituality, black spirituality, the recognition that God reigns in, in all of these spaces. The idea of compartmentalizing uh, doesn't come out of in reference to black spirituality, that Mm. every space, every cord is a cord that is sacred, Mm. whether it's in secular or sacred space. The second thing is the idea that uh, that God uh, is committed and, uh, rooted and seen in, uh, the eyes and, uh, the movement of those who have been most marginalized, mm-hmm. uh, or in the words of James Cohen, the, the, the oppressed. That's another uh, kind of stamp of, of this black spirituality. The other, uh, piece is the recognition, uh, of the, the power and the wisdom of, of of ancestors meaning those who went before you uh carry with them the wisdom that had been dropped into their spirit uh, by god uh and then you know a, a kind of a fourth uh a fourth pillar that that is rooted within this uh black uh spirituality is uh the the understanding uh and reverence for elders and that African proverb that when an elder dies and a library leaves us Mm -hmm. and the recognition of, of those elements. And then the, uh, the, the, the complete utter, um, you know, kind of omnipresence and uh, proliferation of God in every aspect, Uh, meaning that the idea of denominations is so incredibly thin It just it's thin. It just Mm -hmm. spirit trumps doctrine within the within black spirituality, that the Mm -hmm. spirit is so wide and so present uh, that whatever particular doctrine um, concern that you may have is deeply limited by human beings using human language and human frameworks and the spirit is always trumping that, which Mm. as soon as you write something, Howard Thurman says it this way, you're already behind what the spirit has done Mm. Uh, and your language will never be complete. It will never approximate. The best you can do is say it's like, just like in Pentecost. It's it's like, it's like tongues of fire. You mean it was actual tongues of fire? No, it's like, Mm. (laughs) I can't give you an approximation because my language is too limited. So then music becomes a way to transmit what is sacred. John Coltrane, Love Supreme, Marvin Gaye, what's going on? And it's not just in the words, it's in the sound, Mm. that the sound can transmit something very uh, powerful and the beat and the rhythm uh, within, within black spirituality. And so those are just some of the, some of the particular pillars that, that, that function yeah. in that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. The embodiedness from the very beginning mm-hmm. You know that other people later on beyond the dualisms are figuring out how do we put that together around us? And also the, for some people, longer journey, how do I put it together within me? You know, those dualisms weren't all weren't present in the same way that they have been you know, for white folks in white churches. And, you know, even I want to narrow, I said, I'm going to begin broad. I'm going to narrow it down based on something that you said, right? We have this broader tradition of black mm-hmm. spirituality. And because of the blurring of the lines and the not having those delineated markers between the sacred and se- secular, black spirituality is naturally emanating from, and then for leaders like yourself, drawing from anywhere mm-hmm. and everywhere, right. right? From around there. So let's talk about the black church, because if you have never been a part of the black <laughs> church, you just don't get it. It's like I've heard you say somewhere like not growing up in white churches, you don't get what it's like because you're like, oh, I guess they maybe they do what we do kind of, but they're white because you're just not there. Right. And I think so much of historical black institutions in the U.S., white folks just have no reference point to know How deep and rich they are, or just the feel of them, like black fraternities, you know, HBCUs, black churches. There is no there's no personal connecting point. So to go even more narrow, the black church. Mm -hmm. My question is about the beauty, power, and love that you have for, experienced in, and see in the black church. Like if I were to tell you about what it means to live in Hawaii. You know, I can talk about the terrain and the beauty and the colors, you know, people are, people's lives are still oriented around the water and what that means, you know, what the role water has out here historically. And I could talk about what it means as a white person to be embraced here and how powerful that is, you know, to be, to be taken in by Hawaiian people. It's like the, the arms of the people extend the islands themselves and take you in. If, if, if that happens and it's powerful, mm-hmm. what do you Talk to me about, you know, people haven't been there, the beauty, the sounds, the feels of, you know, why this historical institution of the black church is so amazing.
0: You know, it, it's, I'm glad you asked that question, Kev. There is, I would put it this way. it It, it is a beautiful mosaic and, and jazz narrative. You have the power of the spirit that Within, within the black church and black spirituality, the belief that the spirit possesses um, a, a person and is loose, causing holy mischief everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad you brought up fraternities and HBCUs, because if you go to an HBCU graduation, they turn into revival meetings all the time, mm-hmm. uh, because <laughs> there's, there's no... Sacred secular separation, uh, in reference to it. So you have this. Uh, the, the The spirit is is so very present. Um, elders are deeply revered, uh and ancestral wisdom uh, is is always a part of the communication and the welcome. In and and this is what I find very fascinating from from people who are outside of 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 the community. Not to say the community is perfect, but the welcome is absolutely extraordinary in, in in a black church that's practicing this. And I've heard that over and over and over again. And the depth of diversity is what people miss. You know, in our church, only 85, it's primarily, it's, we're majority African-American, but only 85% probably of people of the church are, are native English speakers and the others are, uh, speak, they grew up speaking a pat, some form of a Patois. Uh, for, they were from South Africa, Ghana, and Brazil, or they're Afro-British, Afro-French. And yet they bring to the table this, this creolization of uh, this tapestry in reference to the spirituality. Then there is the, the power of music transmitting mm-hmm. values, Uh, So it's not just, yeah, this is my favorite hymn. No, I want Jesus to walk with me speaks very powerfully. And then these songs can be edited, changed and remixed in such a way. Um, This little light of mine, for example, I was just doing a thing on Fannie Lou Hamer, which was one of her favorite songs. um, And she would change the lyrics, speaking about freedom, speaking about what Mississippi would be one day that we do that all the time. This Mm -hmm. idea that, improvisation through the spirit and improvisation is not something you just kind of make up on the fly it's mm. meaning that you have done deep practice of the chords already that you are prepared for a move of the spirit when necessary mm. just like playing basketball you you you're working your right and your left and your crossover you don't know when you need it but you know you're going to need it and if mm. somebody tries to um you know, go right on you, then you can cross over and go left. Uh, it's the same way within in the Black church with this mm-hmm. deep call and response. So as a preacher, whatever I prepare can be altered in the moment because call and response changes, even if you are a manuscript preacher. And I, and I, I write things out verbatim pretty much. Right. Um, it's still completely, utterly altered. And mm-hmm. so there is this deep jazz narrative within the black church tradition that shifts. And I, and I give you a prime example. When Dr. King gave his, I have a dream speech, you know, it's considered to be one of the great speeches of the 20th century. Uh, un- unfortunately, we've defamed uh, and defamed, <laughs> uh, but defamed the speech uh, because we just remember, I have a dream. the first portion of it, he was really talking about economics and jobs and and all of this. But it's the close that only if you are out of the Black church and Black spirituality, do you really know what happened. So he had a written manuscript.
1: Hmm.
0: And the the story goes uh, that uh, Mahalia Jackson was behind him and said, tell me about the dream, Martin. But in reality, he was thinking about a prayer that a woman by the name of Reverend Prathia Hall gave in Albany, Georgia at a protest where she said, Lord, I'm dreaming that one day that this life that we are experiencing shall be no more. I have this dream. Will you take hold of this dream? No, she she was repeating this refrain. And so as he was closing, he's seeing that in the midst of this, that uh, the connection between those black people who are from the South and himself on the podium was not at the same level that he was, was used to. And then supposedly Mahalia Jackson said, tell him about the dream. We don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds great. (laughs) Uh, And he then does a double entendre with improvisation. Mm. Most of us think of it as a beautiful close. I have a dream, you know, that one day freedom will ring or, but listen to what, what he said. Uh, I have a dream. Uh, that freedom will ring from stone mountain. Now it just sounds like he's doing geography, but to every black person there, there was a double entendre Mm. stone mountain was the headquarters of the KKK. Mm. So when he said it, there's this huge response from everyone because they're like, Dr. King just said, we're taking out the KKK. Mm. (laughs) And then he says, Mm. let freedom ring from the smoky mountains. Headquarters quarters of the KKK in Tennessee, people who remember that their grandfather was lynched Smoky Mountains. And so this swell happens and there's this talking back and forth going on as he's drawing directly on the experiences of people who are in the audience. So one group, those from the South and who were black, were like, yes. And the other group was like, "Well, oh, that, that's a nice speech. That sounds really good. You know, and so there, there was different levels to that. Just like when you're singing a spiritual, you say, swing low, sweet chariot coming forth, carry me home. It's like, they're talking about heaven. No, they're talking about freedom. They're Mm -hmm. talking about that based on whether I'm singing the bass part, tenor or alto, I'm telling you which direction to leave the plantation. Mm -hmm. And so the depth of this space is extraordinary. That has really never been truly explored by, by people who are not in that space, often then they're not they don't even recognize that there's so much going on in the midst of the language and between the language and the songs and between the rest and the songs and the talk. But talk. it's not it's it's not just a simple emotion that's happening happening. It's a organic theological narrative that's going on that has been passed down from generation to generation.
1: Mm, yes. Yeah, and the whether it's the double entendres, the improv happening within it, because this is connecting to the history, which brings our imagination back here. Which then, then the only the people who get that know what is really happening now. Because that's yeah, that's that's powerful. I love that. And hip hop does it
0: all the time with these. I like- was do- I was just <laughs>
1: thinking that I'm like, it's crazy how much that. Organic thing still goes on because this reference and this this track actually was about that record in '88 when they were dissing (laughs) them. So he's saying Queens and Broncos, still that. I love it, man. That's a that's powerful. I'm glad to start there. You know, out of that space, out of these traditions. You know, and that's that's one thing that's so powerful is when people are consciously flowing in a river that has been going much longer than them. Mm, You know, mm, and that's an interesting dynamic when we think about whiteness and institutionalized white supremacy, not only being bad for the people who the system is leveraged against, but also in the end, actually being bad for the full humanity of white people, too, because when immigrant one of the things is when immigrants came here, when Irish immigrants were coming or other folks, Mm -hmm. there was this economic need and value of actually starting to forget and disown your own Mm -hmm. cultural heritage to start to blend into a generic whiteness for the sake of assimilation etc but what did we what did we gain of course it was easier there's no judgment there when people are coming Mm -hmm. over and making things work but in the long run me being irish that don't really mean a damn thing to me on a concrete level because I have no actual connection to that song, mm. you know, and that story. So when people, regardless of the tradition, are aware of that and they're flowing within it, it's a whole different thing that's happening through them and for them when you're in it. Because you know how much bigger it is and you know you're a part of something like that. And that's, yeah, and that's lost, you that. know? Yeah. I'm going to shift a little bit. So much of spirituality is about seeing. Mm -hmm. And there is this, you're you're a Bible guy, probably much more than me. I have some degrees too, but you know, I, not really growing up. Like I did go to Catholic school when I was a little kid and stopped and I just sort Mm -hmm. of drifted. I didn't have some ideological, like I'm leaving the church. I was just young and it wasn't, I just stopped going. Right. So I tell people I grew up with a real pleasant indifference. Mm-hmm. To religion and to church. I had to this unexpected awakening moment with God while I was 18, while I was on mushrooms, whole different story, different podcast. And then, uh, you know, it ended up my wife and I started a church 10 years ago, led it for mm-hmm. 10 years and just recently closed it down. Actually, again, another story, but you see this thread throughout scripture of, we need the eyes of the other to help us see the truth out of our own. Mm-hmm. Right. You're a Bible guy. Acts 10, Peter need mm-hmm. Cornelius and his family to see that God's spirit gives herself freely. Mm-hmm. Right. Acts 15, the Jerusalem church needs the, the witness of the Gentiles and what's happening there mm-hmm. to realize the universal access, accessibility of God, etc. Now, here's something I think, and it's also fresh connected with some some writing that I'm doing right now. Without, let's think about our lives now, without the liberating Jesus that is given so powerfully from the Black prophetic tradition, oftentimes white churches, regardless of denominations, are left with an abstract and white Jesus that, from my perspective, is simply not powerful enough to lead us through and toward justice in the concreteness of our day. Mm. Right? So let's assume We need the eyes of the other to help us see the truth out of our own. Let's assume the white church needs Black voices, needs Black leadership, needs Black women's voices to help us see, as a carrier of this tradition, what would and could white folks, and specifically white Christians, see if they actually listened to these legacies that would allow them to be more faithful to this tradition that we're all a part of?
0: I think you're, you're, right on target. Um, wh- when I'm teaching with, and I, I teach homiletics at, uh, at Mercer, uh, university now, and I'm really appreciative of them allowing me to, uh, talk with the students. I tell, because the majority of people who are in seminary are women. I tell the men, I said, mm-hmm. uh, how is it that you're going to preach a gospel if you are only communicating with 50% of humanity? How, how is it possible that you would be able to communicate the complexity and all of your mentors are male? Mm. All of your mentors are are white or all of you, whatever it may be. If, if they all, if everybody, then obviously you will have a truncated uh, view of, of, of the gospel. The the other piece is, and I, I shared this one time. I was saying that uh, so so I'm 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 a cinephile. I love movies and and whatnot. And I, I did a presentation talking about basically talking about the the Empire Strikes Back, talking about uh, Star Wars. And I said that it must be understood that the American Church is the Empire. You must decide whether or not you want to be a Jedi if you want to be a part of the Rebel Alliance. Mm. Because you're a part of the power structure, so mm-hmm. all of the rebels will give you the critique of the empire and where the, because the empire thinks it's right. The empire mm-hmm. thinks it's bringing order. the empire thinks it's bringing peace. but in reality, there's a whole group of people say, "No, this is what the empire has done to us." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what you receive when, when you are looking through the eyes of, of someone else. And then there's another really interesting and powerful piece that that is often missed within the, um, within the the American and the Western context is the assumption that Christianity is Western. Uh, and I had someone saying, you know, the color of Jesus doesn't matter. And I said back to him, I said, well, then make your Jesus black and see what happens in your church. <laughs> <laughs> It really doesn't matter. So don't come to me, you know, that we 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 operate out of the out of the position that, you know, we, we serve a South Side Jesus, you know, that mm. our Jesus looks like us. But I'm saying that you're making the, you know, I, you know, this idea that it doesn't matter. It's all the same. But yet, if you can't embrace on in terms of aesthetically something different, then it says something deep about your theology and also says something about the uh, the epistemology of, of of your entire tradition if you can't embrace the otherness of one who was part of a minority, who was othered, who was colonized, and would fit so very well in a community of people of color. Uh, and, and I said, that's, that's a real hard pill to swallow for people in America. It's interesting mm-hmm. that not in Poland, though. Not in certain in certain places across Europe. That's that's not an issue at all. You know, Black Madonna is not doesn't bother them, doesn't freak them out. It's like, oh, yeah, that's exact that. That's that's Mary. You know, they have they have no issue. It's America that has this real challenge around these issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much I want to ask. I do want to get into the book. I'm going to ask one more question before we get specifically into the book, because when it comes to that question I just asked, there's so much I could say. And I think there's so much for people to hear there, which is all the more reason for people to go out and start your work with Dr. Moss at Dancing in the darkest, and then you can go from there. So that that's why I'm just giving you a glimpse. I'm just giving you a taste so you can go do your own research and keep doing it. You know, I was in 2020, you know, one of the ways I started thinking in the terms of apocalypse with mm. what was happening. And I realized I wasn't the, person, the only person. I started seeing other people thinking like that, right? This murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, the uprising that's happening in the streets, the public demonstrations, the end of a Trump era. I was like, man, this feels apocalyptic. And I, you would know, I assume before I explain it to other people, I don't mean apocalyptic in some sort of end times conspiracy Mm -hmm. theory kind of way. I mean, apocalypse as the unveiling or revealing Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. that, which is Mm -hmm. there and has already been true. You know, what Do you think during that, if indeed that the last couple of years, especially for some people who the word, the phrase systemic racism was a new term in 2020, you know, is the word of the year, right? You know, which I always laugh with people like, you know, systemic racism is a beginning point. If you can get all the way to institutionalized white supremacy, it's even better, You know, and I was laughing at that time, like, man, white people are getting book deals talking about systemic racism. No one gave a damn. When I was saying this 12 years ago, all I had was awkward ass conversations with people. (laughs) I wasn't getting a book deal at that point. Um, If it it was if that time was apocalyptic, revealing some of the things that many people have known already to be true, what was Hmm. being revealed In the United States, what was being revealed to people that they otherwise, for many reasons, did not have the ability to see it?
0: Those moments and they continue to reveal, but uh, they they, they reveal what many of us have already known, that 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 America has a deep addiction to uh, Confederate and antebellum ideas, ideals. Uh, America is rooted and uh, baked into uh, what America is, yeah, these, uh, these myths um, that you call white supremacy, the racialized imagination. I mean, the list goes on of what framing and vocabulary you want to do, but it's, they're all myths and on those myths systems are built. Uh, and, 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 and these are revealing w- the experiences of, of, of people in this country who have built the country, mm. but have never been able to fully experience or drink from the cup of democracy from mm. within this country. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a really you know, strange thing for some people to deal with. It has also revealed the weaponization historically of terms like patriotism, uh, that's been weaponized that if criticism is considered to be unpatriotic, but I love the way that Frederick Douglass frames the saying that the most patriotic thing that you can do is speak truth so that a community can be what it desires to be or what God calls it to be. And those two sometimes, those two things he says, they could be very different. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. but you want them to be be, be aligned. Um and how States' rights have been weaponized, and then mm-hmm. I always talk about uh, to, um, especially to our community. I was saying, he said, be careful. Anytime anybody s- starts talking about states' rights, you know they're talking about you, uh, and they're talking mm-hmm. moving your rights. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. because that that's part of the states' rights movement is the pro slavery movement. The yeah, states' rights statement. The, right
1: state, to the right. states' rights to do what?
0: Yeah, yeah, to have <laughs> slavery, to have Jim Crow, to whatever it is. It's always the idea, and then Ronald Reagan begins his campaign <laughs> in Mississippi in the mm-hmm. space where Gurner, I mean Goodwin, uh, Cheney, and Schwerner were killed, and says, "I'm for states' rights," which mm-hmm. was a double entendre to say that. I'm for keeping Mississippi the way it was in the 1950s and 60s. That's the way we heard it, and that was the way it was intended uh, to be heard. And this moment has lifted up. I mean, it, when people talk about the abortion issue, the abortion issue on the Supreme Court was never... They weren't arguing issues of abortion. They were arguing states' rights, mm-hmm. which has implications around voting, implications. So so states' rights is 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 this language that has been used and weaponized against people of african descent since america made its declaration of independence. Mm.
1: yes it's without knowing the whole history for people it, it it's a it takes a journey for people to see things like states rights being codified mm-hmm. language and again the narratives the histories, the people, the places it's connected to. So that's why when you you tell people, anytime you hear that it's this, anytime you hear that it's connected to an entire thing. But if you know, you're like that right there is a thing that is way bigger than whatever you think it was. That's right. You know, because that's and it's right. intentional. You know, the book "Dancing in the Darkness." You know, amazing story of your daughter. I hope you get a chance to tell about. You know, the title of the book. But you begin the book with a letter to your son. And how how old how you have how old are your kids now?
0: My my son is now twenty two. Um, okay. he's he's about to graduate from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. And, oh that's awesome. In in, in a few um well oh, yeah, he'll graduate in May. So it's it's coming very very soon. We've already been is, is he younger? He's the oldest.
1: Oh, he's yeah, the oldest. He's and my and daughter's younger. nineteen.
0: Yeah. She okay. she's in Bacon, Georgia at Mercer University. So okay. so they're they're both in Georgia. They were both born in Georgia. It was our mm. prayer that, uh, uh, for myself and Monica that said they would make their connections back to Georgia in some way, mm. Mm. and and we're very, very pleased that they they went south to. Is there, is there certain things that you can only experience in the south? Mm. Uh, mm. There's certain histories that you will only experience. There's certain pieces of culture that you only get when you're when you when you're in certain spaces mm. in the south.
1: Yeah, the South to me is still like in a like in the realm of imagination and history that feels (laughs) far away because I grew up in Los Angeles. I spent some time in New York City, and now I'm in Hawaii. So I'm like literally between. I skip over every five thousand miles, skipping over everything. Whatever's between, I'm like North Dakota, Wyoming, Tennessee. I'm honestly not (laughs) sure where they are. But you be so so you're you it's funny you're exiting out of boy and a girl you're exiting out of the young schedule school i'm, I'm at four and six i'm just entering into the pray whole, for
0: you man i'm gonna pray for your <laughs> wife too
1: <laughs> whole different journey of. but you begin with a letter to your son mm-hmm. why you know as a writer a preacher for so long words are everything right i love words you know i assume you do too we are intentional, where we place them, what we do with them, what you're already saying in this interview, what they're doing, histories. One word is that's narratives for people. So why would the intentionality and the power of where you place it, why you begin there with in dancing in the darkness?
0: I think um, the story of, of of why I wrote it, the st- and the necessity for a black parent, especially a black father, to have this conversation with, with your, your son, everybody's going to have the conversation. If, if you're a black parent, you have to have the conversation about, um, engagement with, with, with the police. But my son witnessed the video death of Philando Castile. Mm. And he raised the question to me, am I next?
1: Mm. And, and how, I knew how old I, would he have been at that time?
0: He was about to turn fourteen, fifteen.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, I think it was somewhere. He was. He was in. He was in high school at the time. Um, I'm trying to think. Was he ninth, tenth grade? Um, or, or when that happened. Uh, so it, would, it would have been somewhere in around there. And and that question, you you had these conversations with your children, and we you know we thought that we were you know raising him to be very you know conscious and aware of of things but it was very necessary to to write a letter specifically to him as father to son sharing the realities of being a a young uh black boy and how he would be perceived and um that there's nothing wrong with him but there's something wrong with adults who want to to weaponize his uh his skin and will not see the, uh, you know, frolicking joy of a teenager, but will see something else it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with them. Mm. And, and that, that's, an, that's an important conversation to have because I didn't want him to carry the burden as some have to think that, Oh, there's something wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. Mm. Uh, and, and this is, this is a reality that you have to know that it's my job to speak truth as your father and share the truth and the reality. And in that truth is where all of the hope rests because now you're armed with it and now you know who you are, you know whose you are and that you are the answer to our prayers. Mm -hmm. And it is you and your generation that will have the opportunity to make major shifts Mm
1: -hmm. in our
0: country, Mm -hmm. but you gotta know the truth and you gotta be willing to speak that truth.
1: Mm You talk about, you talk a little bit about uh Howard uh, Thurman's story growing up, right? And you talk about, you know, the the import, something like about the importance of fairy tales mm-hmm. is not whether or not they're real about dragons. It's, it's that they tell us, regardless of what you think, they're the stories that are telling us that dragons can be beaten. Yes. It's these power of myths, these power of stories and narratives and how they shape us. What is that section leading to? Because what are these dragons If we're on this journey towards truth, Mm. if we're on this journey towards embodied love, if we're on a journey towards really caring Mm. about this world, like it takes a lot to care. Mm. And I really think that I've, you know, you pastor and lead and work for good, you will inevitably be confronted with things that will make it challenging to keep caring and challenging to keep going. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but there will be challenges because there are times where that can be difficult. So in if we're embracing this life to really care about this world and care about freedom and care about humanity, what are some of those dragons we will inevitably face on the journey that we can overcome like the stories tell us?
0: You know, I think that, uh, many people will say, Oh, there's certain, you know, systems and things of that nature. I say, I, I would say, no, it's
1: mm-hmm.
0: those systems are designed by other dragons. One of the most dangerous dragons that we deal with, uh, is, is cynicism and indifference. The opposite mm-hmm. of love is not hate, but it's indifference is when a person is possessed by the idea of indifference that I cannot make any changes that things cannot shift, um, then they are put into a position or they put other people in a position where they can be manipulated so easily, or you can become um, a a pawn in someone else's game so very easily. So one of the, the the dragons that we have to slay is indifference and cynicism. Uh, This idea that nothing can be done. Uh, But when you have, when you have this, 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 this power known as love connected to courage and connected to justice, it, it, it recognizes that I may not slay the dragon, but I certainly within my lifetime can put a hurting on it. And then for the next generation, because it's been wounded, they may be the ones to possibly kill it. Hmm but the 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 challenge is are we facing a dragon? Or are we facing a virus that mutates, which means that we have to be inoculated every generation from how it mutates
1: mm, interesting yeah you know i I started thinking about this question and I listened to some another interview that you did where you and it was really connected with this this question I was going to ask where you tell this story about Thurman and he was at a chapel, I forget where, and he turns his back, right. Because before that, that story connected with, I was wondering when we talk about love connected to courage, Mm. we talk about, there's this one quote I love that I've been thinking about, you know, in some of my writing where this person talks about opening our heart despite every reason not to. Mm -hmm. Because we have those reasons. (laughs) We all do. Mm -hmm. That's life. You know, that, that, that goes, that happens and it will continue to happen despite every legitimate reason yet, perhaps a part of the miracle of the gospel is we can keep choosing to open up instead of moving towards the cynicism or the indifference, you know, there's the pause. There's this, when we're doing this work publicly, there's also this need for us as individuals. And obviously with you as a leader for so long to draw from this great well of the spirit ourselves. For us to be grounded in the love that we preach so passionately about. So what does it look and feel like for Reverend Dr. Otis Moss to be present to the depths of yourself, to be present to God, right? And and when you return to that space again and again and again for your whole life, what do you experience there? What do you hear there? What is happening there that then allows you to return to Mm. the work and keep going? Hmm.
0: You know, there is a a need for me and I think for, for human beings to find, um, the space to center, center down, a space of quiet and a space of rejuvenation, a space where you can finally hear the words and listen to the spirit. And I find th- those spaces that you, you you can curate those spaces of course yourself, but when I hear not only the words of scripture but uh, the words of ancestral wisdom that has been infused mm. by the Spirit. So when I am listening to a reading, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin,
1: mm.
0: when I. I'm I'm a big fan of Frederick Douglass. <laughs> I mean, uh, when I'm reading, the greatest orator of of the 19th century or the 20th centuries, I would I could say, you can arguably say it was Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. and the intentionality of what he does, the beauty of Ida B. Wells and her work, the writing of Zora Neale Hurston, and then the just sheer, just sublime genius of, of August Wilson and John Coltrane, um, of of Marvin Gaye and Sam Cooke, and then scripture, hmm. and then um, the sounds that come from, from the community, finding spaces to hear that, and then hear, like the way Thelonious Monk says it, He says, there is no music unless there is a pause. You can't have chords unless there's a pause between the chords. So it's not, he said, the only way you compose, it's in the rest. So the question I'm always raising is like, how am I finding my spirit in that rest, in the space in between? where the the comma goes before the next word is spoken where the music is played but then there's a rest between the note and there's just a vibration and an echo um and and that's what the the hebraic the the jewish tradition does in terms of the oral tradition of how something is spoken mm-hmm. and then when you're supposed to pause you could say the lord is my light and my salvation, or is it the Lord? Is my light and my salvation, mm. or is it just the Lord? Is
1: mm. Mm.
0: there's something different in in reference to what happens in the space in the pause mm. that can the words don't communicate the pause and the silence does.
1: Yeah. I'm appreciative of, you know, that wisdom and those words because, you know, something I've witnessed, like I I'll be forthright. Like I love, I love pastors because it's a unique, a unique journey that unless you do it, You just don't know. That's not a judgment on people who don't do it. It's just a very specific thing. Mm -hmm. When people, when pastors end up with PTSD and forms of trauma, Mm -hmm. people don't understand when after a long time, a pastor gets a text message and it sends a jolt of anxiety through their body because they've had too many damn text messages in their life Mm -hmm. that is connected to a hard conversation. Like it's a... the loss that comes of relationships, Mm -hmm. right? The invisible, like so much of leadership is the invisible burden, like a coat we Mm -hmm. carry. It's not the active work we do. It's the passive carrying Mm -hmm. of the whole, right? That, that journey is such a specific one. And I have so much respect and love for the people who continue to offer their life as guides. And Mm -hmm. I love that we ended because I'm going to end it. I promised a hard out at 11 and I'm glad we ended with that pause because It is a lot easier from my perspective for pastors or it's very easy for them to be committed to spreading the gospel to every part of the world without allowing the gospel to be spread to every part of their own soul. That's a different journey. Mm -hmm. And that pause, you know, and even even with everything we're saying about the narrative and community, even with the pause, you still connect it with the tradition. You still connect Mm -hmm. it with other voices, which I love. And it's so everything you're saying you know, and what you're embodying along the way. And yeah, man, I, uh, I appreciate you and the work that you do, you know, and in our times, you know, I've heard someone say, not everybody wants a pastor, but everybody needs pastoral guidance. Mm. They may not want that. Some We know people, they're just not going to church ever. Right. You know, they're right. not, no right. matter how great you preach or how much statistics, you know, about millennials, I don't, they're not going but that doesn't mean they don't need people to be present to them so as you continue the work man I, i appreciate you appreciate you taking the time to do this and so for people listening in the new book dancing in the darkness spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times reverend dr otis Moss III. so find it on amazon anywhere you can get books and uh i was gonna have him tell the story about the title of the book but now You're going to have to read the book in order to get it. So thank you again, sir. I appreciate you.
0: Thank you so much, Kev.
1: Yeah.